That's not good. Oh, I don't know what to do with my life. <laughs> As they try and figure out... <laughs> what? Not a caper like the little vegetable. No better ground for, like, horror to emerge from than the idea that if you really love someone, that it will kill you. Let's have a high Triumvirate. five. for it. Let's do the high five away from the mic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not okay. too much American. No, it was, it was a good amount of American. This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. <laughs> I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. So, in Nightmare, January 2016, there's this story. Sam Jean Miller's Angel Monster Man. I didn't know if there are commas between those words. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know what we're building up to. There's even an Oxford comma, but there's no and. It's just, the three, it's just those three words. Ah, oh, Sam, what were you thinking? I don't know. This story is, uh, is an alternate history gay punk ghost story. It kind of built its story engine from, from the waste of all those gay artists that saw their lives ended by AIDS in the 80s. So it comes from not, not the happiest place that a story's ever began. Uh, but, you know, good, rich stuff. You know, it's the 80s, the government's refusing to act. There are these monsters, basically, with megaphones. I don't mean literally monsters at this point. I just mean people that are bad people that are kind of cheering because there's this glorious kind of possibly from God, disease sent down to kill all the bad gays. And who doesn't love a disease sent by God? Um, I don't know. Always. God. <laughs> God doesn't like it. God's like, why you keep blaming all the diseases on me? I didn't make any disease. Mm-mm. You know who made a disease? Monkeys. The Adam. Adam, he was gay. Mm-mm. That, that <laughs> Carry ruined <on. laughs> So, so in, the, in, in this moment of time, in the 80s, Sam kind of imagines these three friends coming together, a writer, a photographer, and a literary agent who are burdened with all this hate and sorrow, and also just these reams of unpublished works, photos or stories by, by their friends who have died, and they get this idea to construct a man, kind of myth of a man, Tom Minnick, attributing to him all the unpublished work of their gorgeous dead friends. And it was I, such a sad image, the idea that all these men had left behind just crates and crates of papers and creativity. And, you know, it really built this amazing emotional engine for the story. But I interrupt you, carry on. No, no, that's, it, it is. It is an amazing emotional engine. And on top of that amazing emotional engine, in some ways, Sam just puts puts the classic horror story on top of it. <laughs> he just like, here's this real raw emotional horror story that happened and on top of that i'm just gonna put classic horror you know the kind of idea that well the things that we make end up having a life of their own and somehow destroying us and especially that the strong emotions that we have end up destroying us as well it reminded me a little of uh the haunting of hill house and i guess probably almost every other horror story ever written in that in that there is a direct line from from pain, from anger, through to action, and then, oh shit, it's all gone wrong, and we all want to die. That's true, yeah, and that's why in the worst horror movies, where the monster just kind of exists as this weird other that's killing us, the only way to survive is to be a virgin, because it's like you're <laughs> without passion or emotion, and you're that's fine. True. It's uh, like you haven't even Which is why yet. it's like the, um, there's something sort of perfect about putting putting the, the horror structures on, onto AIDS and onto that time because there was an idea that if you had sex, you died. And certainly when I grew up, and a lot of people grew up in the 80s, is if you, if you kiss someone wrong, you would die. Yeah. Uh, and there's no better ground for like horror to emerge from than the idea that if you really love someone, 
that will kill you. It will kill you dead. Uh, it's one of the things I love about a lot of Sam's stories, not just this one. So, so yeah, they, they make this, this meth, this man, and eventually he kind of becomes real, and then he's kind of bothering the people that created I don't know what the and word... That, and that's where Frankenstein compar- or Frankenstein's monster comparison comes in, because he kind of he transcends their original intent, and then when they become unhappy with his uh, self-determination, he then persuades a lot of people to kill themselves. Or at least a few people. Yeah, yeah. He persuades some people to kill themselves. He persuades, like, he's inspiring all of these incredible acts of terrorism yeah. against, like, the, the horrible kind of patriarchal system that's in place. The Frankenstein thing, yeah, I, I thought of that too. And it's like in, in Frankenstein, you have this one scientist who creates a living man from, from dead flesh. Uh, and in this story, you have these three artists who create, create, like, the ghost of a man from the living words of dead people i like that image that like that he was pieced together out of art yeah rather than out of flesh and one of the things that i liked is that the so when the this myth this this man tom tom minnick becomes real and he becomes this point of inspiration that one of the things that i really loved that feels kind of brave and scary is that is that the story imagines the good that can come out of horror so you know right in in like friday the 13th or in frankenstein but the monsters just kind of run amok. Mm-hmm. They either destroy their creator. They kind of go wrong immediately. Or they kill everyone one by one for some reason, rather than gathering them all together and slaughtering them all at once. And monsters aren't very efficient. <laughs> no, they're not. But in this, right, we're already set up to kind of hate the world that has created age and created the stigma and created the, and the blindness. It. Yeah, it created yeah. the blindness to, that allows the world to ignore it. So when Tom encourages activism, the, you know, the ghost, this Tom ghost encourages activism and encourages attacks against the, the politicians or the people in the power that aren't mm-hmm. doing anything, we feel a little bit of a wave of, of excitement over what's happening. And it's something I really love in a lot of Sam's stories is that he generally deals with the horrors we create of ourselves. The horrors come out of our emotions and our desires. Mm-hmm. The, the best horror stories, they, they compel us to have empathy for the monsters that they create. You know, I and that's to, what Sam's stories do. Exactly. I used to think I didn't enjoy horror, but it turned out all I'd ever seen or read was just crap horror, where the monsters weren't integral to who the people were in the story, weren't mm-hmm. the resolution wasn't integral to, to what that meant, and that it was all just based on shocks, right? Yeah, jump, yeah, jump yeah. scares. Yeah, it's based on based on shock and also it's based on shock and also that thing that the monster always represents some kind of undefined other that's out there murdering us and we don't recognize it. And all of Sam's stories, the monster never never is the other. The monster never looks like anything but us. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of Alyssa's story that we spoke about last week where the monster is the protagonist, right? Mm-hmm. In, and again, that is a horror story that I love because the monster isn't just absolutely fundamental to to the structure and the being and the self of the story. Yeah, yeah. There's one other story that this that this one reminded me of, the Sam story that reminded me. Uh, and that is A Christmas Carol. Yes! Oh Which, my god, I wrote that down. Did you write yeah, that I down? I did write that down. Um, you go, you go. Because you've got this Let's have a high triumvirate. Five. Let's do the high five away from the mic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
in the UK. Yeah, not too much American. No, it was it was a good amount of American. The the thing about the Christmas Carol, right, is you have the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future. That's three ghosts. Three ghosts. Are you with us, readers? In this protagonist, in this protagonist, in this story, you have three protagonists. You have uh, Jacob the angel. You have uh, Pablo the monster, and you have Derek the man. and in their own ways, Tom visits each of them and scares them or cajoles them into behaving as he wants. And so you have these three visitations that take place in these three very emotionally charged but very different kind of situations because each of the men is in uh, various stages of doubt or about to like pull the plug on mm. Tom and tell the truth about who he really is. Like the Christmas Carol. Yeah. The visitations do take us through time. And I guess the it's not just the structure of three and the three visitations, but it's the way that those visitations are constructed to push our protagonists, who could be three sides of the same person, uh, into a position where they are forced to accept what they've done and accept the value of it and see it through to really... Um, is it the have the housing act signed or something at the end of the story which is kind of this seen to be a good outcome from what happens of tom's story yes yes except for that one bit where the the women protest and they're like hey there are women gay people too Uh, women are gay too listen readers women are gay too what what i've written down here instead of a christmas carol is an aids carol that's ridiculous (laughs) but i did wonder if sam uh you know, we were moving into Christmas time. Uh, so, yes, to all the things you said. And, and one of the things that I thought about it was a Christmas carol is a ghost story. And so, in a sense, you could think of it as a horror story. But it, it's all about changing the heart of one bad man. Mm-hmm. And so when we read that, it's like a miracle. This one bad man was changed. And in Sam's story, we're not changing the heart of one man. We're changing the whole world. And as soon as you have... A story where you start trying to change the whole world instead of changing one man. I don't know, those kind of stories always veer towards horror in the same way that, that superheroes are always trying to save the world and villains are always trying to change it. So Charlie Jane Anders wrote this awesome story that was published in Asimov's first of all and then reprinted in Lightspeeds. Lightspeeds? How light many speed. light speeds? I believe there's one light speed. It's a three it's a three gear It's shift a three for... hour tour. <laughs> Not when time is relative. Oh. So it's called the Time Travel Club, and it is delightful. And the reason I picked it is because it is so fun. I get pissed off with stories that take themselves too seriously. Stories that are serious, like the one that we just talked about. Sam's story is serious, and it's talking about a serious issue. I'm good to go with that. Okay, so serious issue combined with serious Mm. tone. Good. Good. Okay. Ridiculous idea, like time travel. Yeah. Don't take it too seriously. Be the Back to the Future. Don't be. Oh, but I wrote that down. Did you? Yeah. What do you? Did you don't be what? I don't know what the most self self portentous. No, no, about. I didn't say don't be Back to the Future. <laughs> I said that this story was Back to the Future. Right. Exactly. And it's got some of that fun in it, which is just delicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to read the first paragraph because I love the first line and it. It does what all good first paragraphs should do, which kind of wraps you right into the story and the action and, and tells you what it's going to be about. So it goes. 
Nobody could decide what should be the first object to travel to, through time. Malik offered his car keys. Jaboa held up an action figure. But then Lydia suggested her one-year sobriety coin, and it seemed too perfect to pass up. After all, the coin had a unit of time on it, as if it came from a realm where time really was a denomination of currency, and they were about to break the bank of time forever, if this worked. Right there, I'm like, oh, 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 are they? How are they going to do it? What are they going to do? And she's recovering alcoholic, and who are all these people, and what are they going to do? And I was just bought in for all, I don't know, 10,000 words of it, right up front. What follows is a kind of a delicious time-jumping caper. Yeah, so one of the things I really liked about it is it is, you know, you, you mentioned how are they going to do it? How are they going to travel through, through time? Right. Yeah, yeah. They're so one of, the, one of the delightful <laughs> things about it is it is a delightful story in which they are ridiculously serious about the science of time travel, making much of a thing that was always fascinating to me about time which is that it's mostly just a matter of position. And so anytime you try mm-hmm. to move forward or backward through time, you're just going to arrive at a different position from where you started. You'll never end up where you start, which is a kind of fundamental truth of time travel, that we a never end up where truth, we start. An emotional uh, truth. I love it. That's what a fundamental truth is. Is it? It's true in all forms, On emotional all and physical. Are those, yes, just, are those basically, the only two levels available to us? Are there other forms there of are, truth? There just aren't, time, aren't times to time. There's not time. <laughs> There's enough. no time to discuss. There is neither world enough or time <laughs> to discuss all the different levels in which things can be true. Which, as you know, I think is at least thirty-two levels of truth. Okay. Um, anyway, yes, fundamental truth of time travel, fundamental truth of emotions, fundamental truth all the way down turtles. Mm-hmm. Uh, most stories don't do this, and and it doesn't bother me because I don't really care if they get the science right. And um, in this story, I love it, not because somehow it's more correct scientifically, but because it's correct emotionally. <laughs> right, yeah, they, they would, you, and, and I think that's true. Like, I'm not in love with science for science sake, but I am in love with the idea of people writing smart characters who will be able to calculate that actually, if you move a coin through time by one minute, then the displacement will mean it's actually on the neighbor's roof. Bam! Maths teachers of the world... Raise up your arms in glory. Trigonometry has finally wor- found something worthwhile to do. I mean, there's lots of other great trigonometry. stuff. Trigonometry. Yeah, that's trig- basically trigonometry. Ba- basically, trigonometry is how things move in space and time. Ish. And there's triangles as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you remember at Clarion when Ted Chang talked about different different kinds of time travel stories? Uh, holding hands through wormholes, yeah. Um, that, that was the name of the talk. Yeah, holding hands through wormholes. Uh <laughs> I mean, one of the things that he said was that they were pretty much always about free will and about whether we can change ourselves or the world, you know, as a person or as a species, mm-hmm. or if everything is inevitable. And that, too, was why I thought, oh, it's very smart. It's starting with the sobriety chip because it's the idea of can we change as, as who we are. And all of these people are meeting at the time travel club, you know, presumably because they're looking to change something in their lives mm. or something has brought them there that they want to change. Yeah, it's and, like... It's like the last ditch of the self-help groups that that Lydia, the recovering alcoholic, just kind of drifts into. I feel like all those characters. So you, I'm not going to go into all the characters Malik, now, but they, <laughs> Jaboa, <laughs> Miss <laughs> Miss Pettigrew, no, Madame Alberta, Madame Alberta, Alberta, yeah, named named after the Canadian Probably. place town. 
It's one of one of the things that exists when we describe a place. But I feel like I bet they've all been to at least five or six other self-help groups. A total fight club-tastic, yeah, you know. Yeah. Fight club defined a genre. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. It's like, it's like the speedboat, which ha- carries a million stories in its wake. Oh, okay. I thought you were referring to the speedboat genre of, of story. <laughs> no, I don't know about that one yet. No, no, they didn't have that back in the day. Um, so one of the things Ted said was that the Back to the Future was his favorite time travel story. Right. And I thought about uh, a lot of the similarities and that, that both stories involve time travel. Both are ridiculously particular about how the time travel works. Uh, though in Back to the Future it's a bit sillier. But it's still the same idea that uh, time travel is real in both stories. Mm-hmm. It it's works. complicated. It, it is complicated. It works ridiculously. Mm-hmm. In Back to the Future, it involves a flux capacitor that runs on either plutonium or garbage. I think they change between movies. I think he figured I out how to way. make it run on garbage. He's so smart. Uh, and in this story, they, they, not, not to spoil it, but they do have a time machine, and it is about the size of a dryer, and they build it in a laundry room. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why not? Yeah. It doesn't have to travel at 88 miles an hour, though. Well... I mean, it technically is because it's on the earth and it's traveling, but it doesn't have to travel exactly. It doesn't have to travel exactly 88 miles per hour. The other thing that I loved about this story is how it brought science fiction absolutely into the realm of our reality. And, you know, you buy the idea that that time travel is this fictional notion and we're writing a story about it for sure. But... What it does is stay absolutely true to the kinds of reactions that real human beings would have if they came across this or if they were confronted with somebody who said, by the way, actual time travel, actually real. And so I really felt strongly for the characters as they went through their kind of journey and the ups and downs of will it work, won't it work, the successes and the failures. I really wanted them to succeed because there was such a bunch of, I don't know a ragtag kind of group who come together and whose only emotional <laughs> mm-hmm. support. That's why you said you caper. It's, it's exactly, basically a story a of, a, of, a, of emotional caperhood. Will these people rescue their emotions from despair? Uh, I had a feeling reading the story mm-hmm. uh, where I was like, ultimately when I got to the end, I was like, has this done any emotional, like, you know, do I care about who the people are at the end versus who they were at the beginning has anyone changed is anything mm. better does, does anything matter oh my to God. these people and i and i wonder you know what what do you think about the the, the characters and how they changed in the story or, or the arc that's in there so for me it was all about lydia and how she had lost all hope in her life she was a recovering alcoholic sure but she wasn't certain if there was anything to bother recovering for she'd taken a lot of emotional beatings in her life and things weren't really getting any better except for this time travel club who frankly when she joins them seem like a bunch of codependent psychotics uh, who then it accidentally turns out one of whom really can make a time travel machine codependent psychotics the worst kind of psychotic (laughs) but readers let me tell you if you get through to the end of this (laughs) the last paragraph i cried my little eyes out because really yeah because i'm not gonna spoil it because david bowie was there Maybe she did find there was something worth hoping for, and maybe she didn't. But 
Charlie delivers the end of the story so satisfyingly that oh, I just it was like this kind of umbrella of emotion opened in my chest. It was amazing. Yeah, I asked that about the characters because I felt like sometimes uh, as I went through the story and when I finished it the first time that in a lot of ways I wished that I had known more about the, the lives of the members. Like, you, you know, you said that she had taken a lot of emotional beatings in her life. Uh, but like when I read the story and when I think about it now, I don't remember anything in particular that happened in her life. No, I, I and, guess some of it is implied and some of it is not dwelled on. I think all of it is implied and all of it is not dwelled on because what, what hit me was that, that that idea of not knowing about the characters' actual lives, to use the word actual loosely, since we are reading about their lives and they're also <laughs> yeah. fictional characters, um, was that was part of, what, part of what the story was about. Is it about people for whom sharing themselves was not a particularly straightforward kind of pursuit, <laughs> which is the other reason why I love that time travel was both very serious and complicated and ridiculous, and mm. they, couldn't, they couldn't travel through time without accidentally losing the thing that they were trying to send through time at first. Um, and so, so the, the people in the time travel club are telling stories of themselves you know, in different times, mm-hmm. uh, it comes much easier to talk about themselves. If they're talking about their imagined selves, if they're talking about 19th century piracy or extreme solar sailing. And mm-hmm. it, it occurred to me that that was, that was sort of Charlie's method, that she was giving us all the important things of the characters that she felt was important in this story, mm-hmm. was that the stories they chose to tell about themselves mm-hmm. said who they were. And in particular, in that ending that you're not spoiling, there is a kind of vehicle that's decorated with a whole bunch of crap <laughs> and uh, like a 1958 Buick or pieces of a small passenger airplane. And, and Lydia notes that maybe this was for protection, um, but also for decoration. And I was like, oh, that was the thing that, that when I read that, that line split everything open because I, I thought about how all of these people in this time travel club, a kind of self-help group, are there telling stories about themselves, which are more or less lies because they're not traveling through time, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's all, yeah, at least not at first. And that these stories, just like the decorations on that ship, they're, they're stories that they use to both protect themselves mm-hmm. and to decorate themselves. You yeah. know, to both hide who they are, but also say, look, this is who I am. Yeah, yeah, look mm-hmm. at me, I'm shiny. I'm yeah. shiny, and this is who I want to be. This is who I wish I were if I weren't carrying quite so much baggage. Yeah, well, you know, if you're going to carry baggage, you might as well make it look pretty. Right? Yeah, that's basically... Sequin suitcases all the way. That's what I do when I write stories. <laughs> I'm literally going to give someone a sequin suitcase in the next story I write. Literally. In literature and in actual fact. Okay. I liked how when you said literally there, you pronounced it like a proper person. <laughs> But then when you pronounce literature, you did not pronounce it like a proper person. Okay. Do you have anything else you want to add about this story? Uh, no. If we've missed any great stories that you've read this week, uh, uh, let us know on Twitter at Storyological, which is spelled... Which is spelled story, as in story, <laughs> O as in the letter O, logical, as in we know what we're doing. (laughs) So let us know, and uh, we'll bring you another couple of stories that we're fascinated by next week. Happy reading.